So as we move forward in our series on spiritual disciplines tonight, we are going to talk about the spiritual discipline of submission. This is a tough one, I think, for some of us because the notion of submission has become so distorted for us in one direction or another on the spectrum. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I think a lot of us are more comfortable talking about submission as something that you should expect from a dog more from a person, right? You, if, I, if I tell you that I want to teach my dog to submit, no big deal. If we start talking about submitting to each other, it gets uncomfortable. And even how you think about that depends on whether you're a dog person or not, right? This is a very divisive spectrum, whether you're a dog person or not a, big, a dog person. Our family has a bit of a spotty history uh, with dogs. So when Amy and I first got married, we came upon a dog literally on the street that we rescued, um, that Amy rescued, and uh, her name was Hope. She could jump over a six-foot fence from uh, a sitting position, which we learned very quickly because we had a six-foot fence, and she never stayed in it. We couldn't figure out how she was getting out until one day I watched through the bathroom window as from a sitting position she leaped over six-foot fence and her feet barely hit the top of it as she went over. Um, we also, I, I tried to find a picture of this and couldn't find it, but our very first Christmas card as a married couple is me, Amy, and the dog. This is before we discovered that we aren't really dog people, um, and probably before we discovered we're not really Christmas card people either, it turns out, but um, she was a street dog, and she was not submissive. She did whatever she wanted uh, with us or with other dogs. And after a string of assaults on other animals that uh, culminated with her getting locked in the garage by accident with my youngest brother Britt's cat and only one of them coming out alive, uh, she received the death penalty for that murder, um, which I still feel was an injustice. How many Tom and Jerry cartoons do you have to see to know what's going to happen if you lock a dog and a cat in a garage together? That was our first experience with dogs. Then we raised, uh, partially raised our children and said, no other living things will we try to keep alive until we get to a certain point in this. Uh, we tried too early to become a dog family again, twice, as it turns out. So this was our first go at it. This is Santana. And uh, this is what Santana's life was like a lot of the time. And... Uh, this is where Amy and I really made peace with the fact that we're not really dog people, but uh, our kids are, our girls at least are. Um, we thought we were dog people, but I think it turned out that we had just met some dogs that we liked along the way. There's a difference in that and being dog people. But Santana was too submissive. In fact, any time I would get within a few feet of her, she would pee, um, which had to do with her past and not with me, mostly. Um, but that was kind of cover for passive-aggressive behavior. She went after a kid once, and that was it. So we rehomed her somewhere where she didn't have kids. So that was try one. Try two was Gabby, um, who was great and is a great dog to someone else at this point in her life. But we did not have the attention or space for what she turned out to be. She also had food allergies, which meant I had to spend like four times the normal amount that you would spend on dog food to keep our house from being a total disaster um, from her food allergies. Uh, so you're gonna think we're really terrible dog people. These all have 
uh, except for the first one, have happy endings. They all have homes. But our most recent trip in is Johnny Cash. Now, what happened with Johnny Cash is last year we started looking for a dog, and I found this listing online. And as it turns out, that's Johnny Cash on the far right. In the middle is his brother, Remy, who lives with the Sines family now. Uh, we tried to reunite them after we got them both here in College Station, and Remy apparently has some really terrible memory of something that Johnny Cash did in the family uh, before we all knew them and attempted to kill Cash. So they're brothers in the same town who never see each other at this point. Um, but we, we kind of hit the jackpot with, with Johnny Cash for our family. He's a good fit for our family. So you can't really take pictures of him because he's so solid black that he just is a black blur. Um, but he has a similar life, as you can see, to the last one. Um, when I say he's a good fit for our family, what I mean is he's the right kind of submissive, which means he's submissive to me. Um, not to everyone, but to me, and it's funny, and I tried to take a picture of this, but it's just a black blur and you have no idea what you're looking at. But when I walk in, he bows to me. He bows and he, I mean, he even raises one front paw as a sort of salute to me. Um, this is the one being in my house who gets it. But um, submission is funny in animals and it's difficult in people. And some of us, I think, resist this idea of submission because we think, oh, that's just a command to bow like that dog bows to Thad when he walks in the door. That's really what we're talking about. The other end of the spectrum, I think, is are those of us who really don't have a problem with submission. Um, you might be kind of meek in your personality. It's, it's just easier for you. And for some people, that's a really healthy sign. It's a sign of maturity. For others, you might feel that way for the wrong reasons. You may have past trauma that causes you to be that way. You may just think this is the easiest path through life, kind of the path of least resistance. But you may need growth and healing in this area as much as someone who's completely resistant to the idea of submission. Your, your notion of submission may need to be disconnected from some unhealthy sources and reconnected to kingdom purposes as well. So. Uh, I want us to talk tonight about kingdom submission. What does is, what is this idea of submission look like in the kingdom? And then particularly as a spiritual discipline, what does it mean to practice submission in the kingdom of God? And so I'm going to do that in three parts. These are the three parts I want to talk about tonight. Mutual submission, which I think is the ethic of submission that we get in the kingdom. Specifically, submission and spiritual authority. What does that look like with one another in the church? And if I have time... Uh, which I may not. I'm going to talk a little bit about submission and earthly authority. It's a little bit different category. Uh, it's something I like to talk about. If I don't have time, I've written some about it, and I'll share that this week. But um, Dallas Willard, who's written a lot on spiritual discipline, says that submission, in his mind, is the highest level of fellowship because it involves humility, complete honesty and transparency, and confession and restitution for us to live in a practice of submission with one another. What he means, though, and what the Bible means by submission is different than what I think most of us think about when we hear the word. So we're going to look at how the scriptures frame this in a few different places, but here's one of the first, uh, one of the ways that Paul articulates this idea of submission. He sets it up this way. He says, so imitate God. 
Follow him like adored children. So he's going to frame this instruction that we're going to get to submission in this broader commandment that you're supposed to imitate God. You're supposed to live with God who is revealed to us in Jesus. And we'll see this spelled out more specifically. You're supposed to live in his footsteps with him as the true model. Imitate God. Follow him like adored children and live in love as the anointed one loved you so much that he gave himself as a fragrant sacrifice, pleasing God. This theme is going to come back to us. So be careful how you live, mindful of your steps. Don't run around like idiots as the rest of the world does. Instead, walk as the wise. Make the most of every living and breathing moment because these are evil times. So understand and be confident in God's will and don't live thoughtlessly. So there's this setup of this is how you should live in the context of the world in which you live, different than how the world lives, guided by the, the, the example of God revealed in Jesus. And then specifically in verse 21, he says, and the spirit makes it possible to submit humbly to one another out of respect for the anointed, which is Jesus. So Paul here is pointing us toward mutual submission. He's pointing us toward a kind of submission that's necessary when we say mutual submission and we look at sort of the broadness of verse 21 there, it's, it's a commandment to all of the, the members of the church. It is a kind of submission that's necessary for all members of the body of Christ. And it comes from the Spirit with its eyes on Jesus. It's, it's the only way that it happens. It's from the Spirit looking at Jesus, we are all instructed to submit to one another in, in this, what he calls mutual submission, if you look at a, a couple of other translations. Just to sort of simplify that, mutual submission is, for any one of us, is taking up the voluntary spirit and posture of, of servant toward one another. So voluntary, not, not because I'm made to, not because some life circumstance compels me to, but voluntarily, I take up the spirit and posture of a servant to another, and included in this idea is the fact that that spirit and that posture will result in real roles of serving the other, regardless of other measures of power or position. It doesn't matter if I stand in the eyes of the world above someone, that I take on the role, I, my spirit changes and it leads to a change in the way that I live toward other people so that I'm able and willing uh, and by habit serving other people no matter of status or position. So before we get into the details of all of that, I wanna frame everything with a second passage from Paul. And this passage for me has become an anchor point for almost every question <laughs> that we are, as people in this day and age, I think, struggling with in terms of how we're supposed to think and be and live in a very complicated world. In Philippians 2, Paul writes this, don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to, to others. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests first. In other words, Adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed. Live with his attitude in your hearts. Remember, though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new, a servant in form and a man in deed, the very likeness of humanity, 
He humbled himself, obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. So God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name above all. So when his name is called, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and below, and every tongue will confess, Jesus the anointed one is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Jesus has reminded us at other places in the Gospels that we're not greater than him, that we don't get to choose a path uh, greater than the path that he walked, that he's the master and we're the servants, and we don't, we don't get to take a more comfortable ro- road than he took. But we struggle, even those of us who have been in the faith a really long time, struggle to really embrace this path that Paul describes in Philippians 2. This path which says, I will look to the interests of other first, others first. I will make sure other people are taken care of before I am taken care of. And that is not just a small gesture, but that my whole life will be formatted around the model of Jesus, who though he was God, set aside all of his rights and all of his privileges and gave his life away for other people. This is what we're called into, but it's hard. It's difficult for us, even though Jesus has said, you're not greater than me. This is the way. But I think this is really the whole ballgame. We could, we could read this passage six times over tonight and, and move on. We're not going to do that. But, but we could. And it would give us what we need. Because this is how we get to real humility and real submission in the way that God intends us. We are compelled to get beyond ourselves, beyond protecting our own interests, and live with the attitude of Jesus as it's described here in Philippians 2 in our hearts. So the focus in this conversation about submission is moving from self-interest to following the way of Jesus, which requires me to see beyond even what I'm free to do, there are things that I am free to do, but the way of Jesus calls me to move even beyond what I'm free to do and give priority to what the people around me need. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul describes it like this. There's a slogan often quoted on matters like this, all things are permitted. And then he responds to that slogan by saying, yes, but not all things are, permit, are beneficial. Then he quotes the slogan again, all things are permitted, they say. Yes, but not all things build up and strengthen others in the body. We should stop looking out for our own interests and instead focus on the people living and breathing around us. This is without, the scripture makes it clear, this is without respect to relative strengths, to roles or positions. In other words, this thinking about how what I do impacts others applies to all of us. It doesn't matter where you fall in any sort of social structure or hierarchy. In Romans 15, he writes this, so now what? We who are strong are not just to satisfy our own desires. We're called to carry the weaknesses of those who are not strong. Each of us must strive to please our neighbors, pursuing their welfare so they will become strong. The anointed one himself is our model for this kind of living, for he did not live to please himself. It doesn't matter if you've got it figured out. It doesn't matter what position you have. It doesn't matter if the, the situation feels like, God, this person is... Your, your call is to follow the model of Jesus who looks even to the weak even to the overlooked, and says, how do I live for them? How do I give myself away for them? And it's important, this is an important part of this. This is intended as a transformation of our spirits, not just our behavior. What happens, and we talked about this 
the beginning of this series some um, is that we get focused on, okay, I'm supposed to do what Jesus would do, so how do I do that? But this is not just about our behavior. The most common translation, I read a different translation, but the most common translation of Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Not just treat others, but regard others. This is an internal transformation that's supposed to be happening. We're asking God to give us the very character of Christ so that it's possible for us to literally kill whatever vanity or ambition or self-interest infects our view of and our interaction with others. We're asking for that actual character of Christ that sets aside self-interest and, and puts the interest of others first, that actually considers others better than ourselves and enables us to live our lives in sacrificial love. The, the application matters, the actual doing matters, but it's supposed to be coming from a transformed character, not just from behavior modification. So we're yielding ourselves so that that humble, sacrificial spirit of Jesus can move through us in unconditional love for others. So that's the big picture, I think, of this idea of mutual submission. I'm gonna come back at the end um, and talk about some of the spaces where I think we get stuck with this um, because of all the baggage we bring into this conversation and bad versions of submission that we've seen or experienced or heard about, many of which we've probably seen or experienced or heard about in the church, okay? I wanna talk now specifically about submission and spiritual authority. So. That's the big picture, mutual submission. This is the, the way that we're supposed to regard one another and respond to one another, all of us, regardless of position. But there's definitely in the scriptures an acknowledgement of the need and place for spiritual authority in the church, including what Peter writes here in 1 Peter 5. Now for the elders of the church, when you shepherd the flock God has given you, watch over them not because you have to, but because you want to. For this is how God would want it, not because you're being compensated somehow, but because you are eager to watch over them. Don't lead them as if you were a dictator, but lead your flock by example. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will be crowned with honor that will shine brightly forever. So that's an instruction to elders, to, to shepherds in the church. And then right here in the same passage, there's an, introduction, an instruction on how the church should view, the church as a whole, should view and respond to this authority. It says, you who are younger in the faith, do as your elders and leaders ask. So there's an instruction to the elders, there's an instruction to those who are younger in the faith, and then there are these words for everyone. All of you should treat each other with humility, for as it says in Proverbs, God opposes the proud but offers grace to the humble. So bow down under God's strong hand, then when the time comes, God will lift you up. Since God cares for you, let him carry all your burdens and worries. That last part, I think, um, is an admonition to all of us, knowing that we will be uneasy on both ends of this, whether you're a shepherd of someone's soul or whether you're being asked as someone younger in the faith to follow and respond in humility and submission to someone who is an elder in the faith, there's an uneasiness that comes with that. And so those last phrases, I think, are, are an encouragement for us um, in our exercising and authority and submitting to authority that God sees you and God cares for you 
And God is, God is involved in this entire project. And so he speaks there in that passage to elders, to those younger in the faith, and then to all of us, no matter who you are in that equation. You're to be humble. And this idea of mutual submission that we saw in Ephesians comes back into play. There's another word about submission to spiritual authority here in Hebrews 13, where it says, listen to your leaders and submit to their authority over the community, for they are on constant watch to protect your souls, and someday they must give account. Give them reason to be joyful and not to regret their duty, for that will be of no good to you. I've heard some pretty heavy-handed sermons um, on this particular passage. I'm not going to preach one of those. Uh, but this is, these are the scriptures, and, and it's important for us to grapple with this reality and with the purpose of position and spiritual authority in the church. Dallas Willard says this about it. He says, in submission, we engage the experience of those in our fellowship who are qualified to direct our efforts and growth and who then add the weight of their wise authority on the side of our willing spirit to help us do the things we would like to do and refrain from the things we don't want to do. They oversee the godly order in our souls as well as in our fellowship and in the surrounding body of Christ. So spiritual authorities in the church, um, taking these passages as a whole, spiritual authorities in the church should be people embracing servanthood more than being excited about being in charge. And as someone who stands in that role in this church community, I say this without hesitation and invite it as an ongoing standard for leadership and for whether it's the position of elder, the position of pastor, or any other way that we invite people to look at others in the church and say, follow their lead, listen to what they say, let them direct the order of your soul or the order of our fellowship. I say without equivocation, these should be people who are embracing the role of servant more than embracing the opportunity to be in charge. True leadership is not drivership. It is not someone standing, pointing a finger, saying, do this. It's not delighting in being a boss or being above other people. Think about it in this way, if you have any doubt that that's true. I don't think I have to convince anyone, but if you have any doubt that that's true, if the scriptures compel us when we are young in the faith to be humble, does it make sense that as we age and as we acquire the status of elder or whatever else, that we would then shed that humility for a spirit of superiority or control? Or does it make more sense that growth and maturity would carry us deeper into humility and into a willingness to serve other people, even those that the world might say, well, that person's below you, they're younger than you, or they're below you in some sort of, some sort of hierarchy. Which one of those makes more sense? It's clear that we're to begin the faith in humility and we're to grow in humility as we uh, move along in our journey. There are lots of roles um, in the kingdom. Some of them are assigned a certain kind of spiritual authority, biblically. Um, and we should recognize and respond to that authority. But I just want to say really clearly that that authority is not validated by charisma. That authority is not validated by worldly strength. That 
authority is not validated by success or by control or by knowledge alone. It's validated by humility and wisdom, sustained, humble wisdom that demonstrates character over the long haul and demonstrates an ongoing willingness to serve. That's who we ought to be looking to for spiritual authority. And we ought to be taking the scripture seriously when they tell us to look and listen. And even when, they use, when it uses words like submit. But it's to those kind of people that we should be looking. When we're called to submit to those in roles of authority within the kingdom, it's not us being told to bow like Johnny Cash bows to me. Johnny Cash the dog bows to me. I don't have visions of actual Johnny Cash bowing to me. <laughs> He's hardwired to want and need a pack leader. That's how dogs are. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about submission. This is an invitation for us to, number one, follow the example of Jesus, whose choice of humility was not based on his relative status, but on his full embrace of the power of sacrificial love instead of the power of status. So we're invited to join Jesus in believing that we have more to gain in humility and in servant-shaped love than in clinging to our own sovereignty. It's a really hard one for us to believe, but it's an invitation to believe and follow Jesus into believing that I have more to gain in humility than into clinging to and protecting myself. And then two, it's an invitation to be blessed by the goodness of the kingdom. We are so bound up and scared to death that if we submit to the authority of another person, we're gonna get misused or abused or directed wrongly, that we miss the goodness and the blessing of the kingdom that comes through the saints who have walked in the faith longer than us. And I think it's harder than it's ever been for us to trust that goodness in the kingdom. I think it's hard for us as adults who've grown cynical of that. It's hard for teenagers who are really interested in establishing your sovereignty from your parents. It's hard for kids who are young, who wanna do what they wanna do and think their parents are idiots. It's hard for all of us to believe that there is blessing in the covering, in the direction, in the spiritual authority of those who are a little further down the road. But the scripture couldn't be clearer about it. And my experience is that when you are following and submitting to people like we described, that it's loaded with blessing. Not perfect. Doesn't mean they always know what you're supposed to do. That's not really even the model here, is to have someone telling you what to do at every turn. But embracing, as Jesus did, humility and submission and believing there's blessing in that. Okay, time. All right, I'm gonna talk real quickly about submission and earthly authority and then I'll, I'll wrap up um, with a few final thoughts. I don't really have time to crack this open in depth, but uh, I've written about it some and, I, and, I, and I'll share that uh, this week with some of these thoughts, but, but here's the short version. There's a lot of talk um, culturally and it, it's not new though it tends to ebb and flow depending on what's going on in the culture, but there's a lot of talk culturally about the role of Christians in submitting to government authority or authority established around us um, in the world. And so 
my, my very summarized take on this is that the Bible instructs us to be good citizens who acknowledge the value of civil order by showing respect for civil authorities. I think that's just a generic, true thing about what the scriptures do here. But what has happened is anytime someone bucks the system or resists or push back against authority that we like, um, I'm not gonna get into a lot of detail here uh, lest I get into trouble or, or go down rabbit holes I don't need to go down today. But this, this definitely fluctuates depending on whether the civil authorities are your chosen civil authorities or not your chosen civil authorities, how much Romans 13 gets thrown around. But there's a lot of talk about anytime someone pushes back against your chosen civil authorities that, wait, 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 you're supposed to respect the authority that God has put in place. But I don't, by any means, think that the scriptures give us a blanket command to do everything the government tells us to do, no matter what, or to conform to all the civil customs and traditions. Because um, some of those civil customs and traditions, newsflash, uh, some of them do, even in America, run counter to the way of the cross and conflict with our allegiance to Jesus. And so I don't think the scripture compels us to just blindly follow all of those. And it's just a short demonstration that those caveats have to be part of our reading of these texts about submitting to government authorities. Remember that Paul, who wrote Romans 13, and Romans 13 is the passage that tells us to be subject to human authorities. Paul, who wrote those words, openly criticized the state for its failure to provide justice for all of its citizens. And he ultimately went to prison where he wrote a good chunk of the Bible that you have in your hands or in your house from prison for violating the orders of the civil authorities and not following the customs of the empire. And Peter, who wrote 1 Peter 2, which tells us to be subject to every human institution, was commanded by the civil authorities, by the human institutions, to set aside his gospel conviction and fall in line with the empire. And he responded, we've got to obey God rather than men. Sorry, lock me up. So for the men who wrote these words about worldly authority, there's clearly a space for not simply yielding to all of the whims and the norms and the commands and the customs of that authority. There's clearly a space even for resisting by the Spirit, resisting that authority. And part of the reconciling what they wrote and what they did here, I think, is recognizing that Paul and Peter understood that the authority the state possessed meant that they could impose consequences when they resisted that authority and they lived with those consequences. We're not, we don't like to live with consequences, so we want it real cut and dry and, and clean. Am I supposed to submit to the, the civil authorities all the time or not all the time? And if not, how dare they? they these guys knew they were going to get locked up. But they said, we have to obey God rather than men. They also weren't starting riots. In fact, if you get into the history of the scriptures, you find that Jesus and then his disciples were the ones saying, Violence, the way of the empire, the way the empire got power is not the way for us to get power. And it all circles back to the way of the cross. So there is a command here to live understanding there's a role for civil order. It's not a blanket command to do whatever the heck uh, that's those civil authorities say. 
That's a sermon. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, right? Okay, I'm almost done, but before I finish, I want to address just a couple of the spaces where I think we get stuck um, when we start talking about specifically those first two areas, mutual submission and, and spiritual authority, um, where we get stuck because of the baggage we bring into this conversation uh, from previous experiences with, with this idea of submission. These texts, I want, just to put some context to them, these texts that we've read to, tonight about submission are written into a hierarchical culture that was very defined by the rigid authority structures of the world, by these are the haves, these are the have-nots, um, and there's no flexibility for getting out of those spaces. They, these are the powerful, these are the vulnerable. Th these texts were written into those spaces. So when you read these texts, it's important to make sure you don't just hear blind endorsements of the world's view of power when you come across uh, something like the young should submit to the old or wives should submit to their husbands, which is written in that passage in Ephesians 5. It's important that you don't just hear blind endorsement of that have, have not power structure that existed in the world at that time. Because if the scriptures were meant to just uphold that status quo, that's all you would read in those instructions. But the fact that, that they follow words like all, that, that, that these passages of scripture follow words like all of you younger in the faith should do as your leaders ask with words like all of you, including the elders, should treat each other with humility because remember God opposes the proud. And the, the, for the fact that words like wives submit to your husbands were followed by words like husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, giving away his whole life for her. That tells you that these early leaders in the church are insisting that the ground is now level at the cross. This hierarchy is not what we're concerned with. Everybody's supposed to live in humble submission to one another. The old systems that require humility from one group and not from another are unraveled by the gospel. So this is where there's revolution. It's easy to just see where Paul says, yeah, the young should submit to the old or wives should submit to the husband and miss that the scriptures also say mutually you should be humble with one another. And that's revolutionary. That changes what, what is happening in that culture where this was written. But let me, let me say something that may not be terribly popular, but I think is biblically unmistakable. The point of that revolution is not to empower anyone to a better position in the world's hierarchy. Not wives, not children, not anybody on the underside of power. The point of the revolution that comes with the gospel is not to empower those people to better positions in the world's hierarchy. It is to humble everyone and replace the world's hierarchy with a kingdom ethic. And let me be clear about what I mean here. Certainly part of what's happening in these texts and in many others is an empowering of everyone in the faith. So I'm not saying the point is not to empower anyone, but it's an empowering of people in the faith. But anywhere that it's, the gospel is empowering people, the point is for all people to live the power of the Spirit, not their own power, not the power um, of their position or their status or any other marker. Empowerment is about the power of God working freely in all. 
and understanding that God doesn't discriminate the way that we discriminate. The power of God works freely in all who are inhabited by the Spirit of Jesus, whose power is rooted in sacrifice and humility, not acquiring status in the eyes of the world. So the gospel is compelling all of us to humility and to sacrificial love rather than stepping into the world's power struggle and simply choosing the group that's been on the underside for a while to put them on the upside for a while. That's a really lousy trade. And we ought to be careful that we don't settle for that when we think about the way the gospel comes into our stories. If we're not careful in our zeal to heal injustices and right very real wrongs, we're going to fall into this thinking that just accepts the narrative of the world, that true value is, acquire, is found in us acquiring power that someone has tried to take from us, and that that's the struggle. That's not the struggle. Even if that kind of endeavor succeeds, it just writes a new chapter in a sad book about people needing worldly power to feel whole. That's not our book. It's not our story. It's not the gospel. The gospel is revealing a kingdom where real power is acquired through the cross and through a cross-shaped life. This is the idea of submission. And it's why it's not something we should be afraid of because it is a call to all of us to come on equal ground before the cross. Let me also say this, and I'm, I'm about done. Um, one of the many implications of the gospel is that God sees the forgotten and the mistreated and the abused and those who live on the underside of worldly power and live in the throes of injustice. And he comes to them and he says, your value is not determined by those lies or by those injuries. And he moves, and we ought to allow him to move and welcome him to move, through his spirit and through his church to bring liberation to those people. And he does not further compel people to submit to abusive or to, to destructive authority. But the liberation he gives is not away from any idea of submission into now you get all the power. It is liberation out of the oppressive cycle of human power into this beautiful tenderness of a kingdom where power loves and power protects and power serves instead of reveling in its own strength. So that's, that's the story. The biblical notion of submission is it's not about endorsing whoever happens to be in control of those old power structures. But it's also not just about cementing those structures and then reversing who's in charge of them. The biblical idea of submission turns that whole notion of authority and submission on its ear. These texts that we're reading are revolutionary writing and teaching as the gospel levels that ground at the cross for all of us. So, um, in, in talking about this in the context of spiritual disciplines, I just want to say that it's important for us to not just hear this as philosophy. It's important for us not to just look at this as something to aspire to. This has to be an intentional shift in our spirits internally, and that requires discipline. Um, it, it, it requires change in the way that we live externally, and change in the way that we live also requires discipline. And like other disciplines we've discussed, we have to build it into our lives. We have to build new rhythms uh, of submission, of approaching other people the way we've heard the scriptures tell us to approach other people 
into our lives. We have to remember that we're compelled, as Paul wrote, to embrace true humility and to lift your heads to extend love to others, to get beyond yourselves in protecting your own interests, to be sincere and secure and secure your neighbor's interests first, to adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed, to live with his attitude in your hearts. We no longer have to cling to or to acquire power for ourselves. Instead, we find real life and real identity in Jesus, who though he had the right to claim all power, took the form of a servant and gave himself away. Let's pray. Father, would you give us courage to believe that there is more than what we see? As we encounter your words that call us to another way, it can seem disorienting, it can seem upside down, and it is. And it is much easier to believe what we see, to believe that we have to take care of ourselves and look out for our own interests, because who else is going to do it? Would you reassure us that the answer to that question is you? And more than anything else tonight, would you assure us that you are looking out for our interests, that you love us, that you see us, and that you are a much better protector of us than we are of ourselves. And in your wisdom and in your goodness, you've said, here's real safety, here's real life. Give yourself away. Take into your heart the model and the spirit of Jesus. Would you make us people who are not afraid to face one another, to look for the spirit alive in each other, to receive it in humility and to find in that the blessing of a, a life shaped by Jesus and his cross. As we come tonight to take communion, you're invited to come and take communion with us and this is where every week we remember that, that Jesus is the way. That there are other ways that come out of our hearts, there are other ways that come at us from the world, but this is the way, the truth, and the life. And we feed on it, and we're changed by it. So come and remember.